Well, we are in part three of a little mini-series in Philippians about the greatest trade that you can make. And so we've, we've been learning some characters in uh, recent history. We learned about Jesse Livermore, who in 1929 um, shorted the stock market uh, in a large way just before the Great Depression and uh, made $100 million or $1.3 billion in today's money. And that was... Um, the greatest trade of all time to that point. We also saw that he lost all that money over the, last, the, the following five years. Then we looked at uh, Howie Hubler, who in 2007 did something pretty complicated, uh, more complicated than he himself understood. And uh, on behalf of Morgan Stanley, uh, the bank that he worked for, he lost $9 billion, which was the greatest trading loss of all time. Um, but we kind of sympathized with Howie Hubler because... The market crashed in 2007 in a way it had never done before. That had never happened. It was completely unexpected, unpredictable, and so we we kind of feel sorry for him that he was the one that that got labeled as the the worst trader of all time, but he couldn't have predicted the market. No one could. The only thing is that somebody actually did. Uh, His name was Michael Burry. Michael Burry uh, predicted that the market was going to crash even though it had never happened before. Uh, Burry is one of these particularly intelligent people. You know how we say, well, it isn't brain surgery when we talk about something that's very difficult and complicated? Well, Michael Burry was a brain surgeon. He, he was a medical student specializing in, in brain surgery, but he found that that wasn't challenging enough for him with, all, you know, the 16-hour-long rotation days and all the classwork and all of that. And so in his spare time between midnight and 3 a.m. every day, while he was studying to be a brain surgeon, he taught himself stock trading and started a little website and became one of the most influential stock tippers on the internet, um, making a lot of money for other people just by predicting what was going to happen. And then when he realized he could actually make money from doing that himself, he quit his medical career. This is after he became a doctor, um, and he insisted that people call him doctor. But he uh, worked and started a little uh, hedge fund of his own called Cyan Capital, named after a science fiction book that he liked. And soon investors put millions and millions of dollars with him. He had built up this reputation of just having an uncanny ability to predict what was about to happen in the market. And um, so he made his investors a lot of money. Everyone was very happy with him until early in 2007, he suddenly took all of his investors' money out of the stocks that they had invested in and put all of their eggs in this one basket, shorting the housing market, predicting that it was about to crash, even though that had never happened before. And he was the only one doing that. And so, of course, everyone thought he was absolutely crazy, putting all of his eggs in this one basket that... Really, there was no way of knowing if it would ever happen. In fact, it was most likely that it would never happen. And so uh, he, w- he didn't explain this well to his investors. He, he kind of thought of himself as um, smarter than them. He, he blamed his antisocial skills on the fact that he grew up with only one eye and had been teased about that. Also, he had Asperger's syndrome, and so he said, you know, he wasn't good with people. So instead of explaining to his um, investors what he was doing, he just told them that they were too dumb to understand and that they should just trust him. Well, that didn't work. So they all got together and they decided to sue him just to get their money out of the account. He had a little clause saying that he could freeze 
their assets and they couldn't pull the money out if um, it wasn't in their best interest. And so that's what he said. It's not in your best interest for you to take your money out. And so he kept their money in this crazy short and they started losing millions and millions of dollars. Everybody, all of his investors were just losing money and he kept telling them, trust me a little bit longer. Just trust me a little bit longer. Well, of course they didn't and so they, the legal battle was raging and while the battle was raging, the housing market crashed exactly the way he predicted it would. And while everybody else was losing their shirts, Sign Capital's investors became ludicrously wealthy. He himself made $90 million on that trade, personally. And his investors had more with him, so they all became extremely wealthy. He made them more money than anyone else was making at the time. He was the only one making that kind of money for them while everyone else was losing everything. And nobody said thank you. He released their funds and said you can withdraw them. They withdraw their hundreds of millions of dollars of profit very sheepishly, and no one had any contact with him. And the day that he announced how much money they all made and that they were free to take it, he followed it up with an email that just said, you're welcome. And he was proven right. Well, Christians also seem crazy sometimes uh, when we choose to put all of our eggs in one basket, a basket that really can't be proven until you die. Uh, we put all of our faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone, and the rest of the world looks at us and says, well, there's no proof of that. You can't know for certain. You're putting all your eggs in this one basket, and we all seem a little bit crazy as we cling to the righteousness of Christ. But Jesus says, you might experience a lot of loss now, but just trust me a little bit longer. This is what we see in Philippians chapter 3. So turn your Bibles to Philippians 3. We've been seeing in this little uh, three-part mini-series that to make the greatest trade of your life, you need to first release your rubbish and then prize your profit. Releasing your rubbish means that you let go of the things that you place your trust in, the things that most people place their trust in is that they're a good person, they're good enough, that what they're doing secures heaven for them. And that's what most people cling to. I was born in a Christian home, I go to church, I, I'm, I live in a Christian community, I'm not a Muslim, I'm not an atheist, I've got all that going for me, and that's what they cling to. And that's what we looked at with, with Paul saying, well, I was... A Hebrew of Hebrews, you know, I was circumcised in the end day. I was born into the right tribe, I was born into the right people, but my family connections meant nothing. And so you need to let go of that clinging to pedigree that you just think you happen to be born into the right culture and the right time and the right family and the right church and that that means anything to God. Then we looked at how he clings to performance. A lot of people do too. Well, I'm a deacon in my church, that's my position. Or my performance, I do all these things. And Paul said, well, I did all those things better than anyone. I was a Pharisee. I, I was persecuting the church. That was my zeal for righteousness. I was blameless according to the law. And yet that counts as nothing. And so we, we just were reminded that you can't cling to, to anything that you're placing your trust in. You have to release that as rubbish. And then you, you profit your prize. You cling to Christ. You realize that it, you, you give all that up, but you you're guaranteed salvation for eternity because of what Jesus did, not because of what you did. And you cling to Christ, you put all of your faith in Him and Him alone, and then yes, your life will change and you'll go to church and you'll serve other people, but not as a way of earning anything, but just as a response for what Christ has done. Okay, so that's sort of where we find ourselves. Um, 
then we, we ended with that question, well, what, you know, what's in it for me? <laughs> what do I get? And so we looked at the five aspects that Paul talks about of the profit that you get when you cling to Christ. And so we saw intimacy. You get intimacy with him, a deep personal knowledge of him. Uh, innocence, meaning you, you become innocent of your guilt. Uh, you have Christ's righteousness. Invigoration, the spiritual power that he gives you to live this life for his glory. And that's what we covered last week. And then this week we're going to see involvement, the sharing in suffering, his sharing in yours and yours in his. And then invincibility, the fact that we are you know, invincible to death and that we can hope in a resurrection. So let's read again from verse Philippians 3, verse 7. Well, let's take it from verse 4 for the visitors. Um, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. There's the intimacy that you gain. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's the innocence from your guilt that you get. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. There's the invigorating power you gain. And may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. There's the involvement we'll look at today. And that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. There's the invincibility to death. So you can see all of this is coming directly out of the text. This is something that God uh, inspired in his word, that Paul in his wisdom, led by the Holy Spirit, wrote this down for our instruction. And so we're going to start with involvement. You know, we looked at intimacy, innocence, and invigoration last week. This week we're going to look at involvement. Look at verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings Becoming like him in his death. Becoming like him in his death. You know, so one of the things that you profit in a relationship with Christ is this involvement that you have in his death. You are now part of what he did on the cross. This isn't just an historical figure like, you know, St. Patrick who did this and did that and went there and you know, got rid of the snakes from Ireland or whatever it is and used the shamrock and yay, let's uh, drink green beer and, and, and wear green on St. Patrick's Day. That's just, that's just an historical figure and what he did. This is different. Jesus Christ was not just an historical figure. Yes, he was. Of course, he lived and he died on the cross and he rose again. But he did so for a reason. He did so to save the world. And so bearing the, the sin of the world... He made his righteousness available for everybody who trusts in him and him alone. 
instead of their own righteousness. And so when you place your faith in Jesus and you let go of the rubbish of your own righteousness, of course you can be righteous according to the law. I mean, that's the lowest standard. You can't be perfect. So when you let go of that and you get his righteousness and you, you become a, a partaker in his life and death and his resurrection, that involvement is what saves you. That's what you get. There is a fellowship in the suffering and death of Christ, a commingling of your experiences. And this is what's pictured in baptism. This is why baptism is such a crucial ordinance that God gives the church. That when you become a believer in Jesus, you go through the, the ceremony, the symbolism of what's happening to you spiritually. A death to your old life and a resurrection to a new life, bound in Christ. Let me just read that for you. That's not just something Baptists came up with to, you know, fight with the Methodists. It's what the Bible says. Romans 6, 1 to 5. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now that we're believers, can we just sin now that we know that we're definitely saved? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. There's the symbolism of baptism. I mean, Jesus could have said, if you want to become a Christian, you need to go into a tomb for three days and then come out to symbolize that. And we would do that if that's what he wanted. But he came up with a really easy way that was uh, an evolution of what the Jewish rite of um, conversion to Judaism involved was this cleansing. And so you die with Christ and you bury. That's why you go under the water. And then you come up with him and that symbolizes that you are in him that you are involved in his death and resurrection. That's, by the way, that's why we don't do sprinkling. Because what does sprinkling symbolize? A sneeze? I mean, this is an immersion. This is a, a death, a burial, and a resurrection. You can't do that with pouring and sneezing, whatever. Anyway, so that's involvement. But now look at verse 9. It says, and be found in him. So to be found in him, that phrase in him, we actually had it at a Q&A fairly recently. Somebody said, what does that mean, the in him? It's a very, very interesting concept, and it's one of Paul's favorite ways of describing our relationship with Christ. I'll give you a couple other verses. Um, he, by the way, uses it 75 times in his letters, this phrase in him. For example, in Ephesians 1, verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 13, in him you also were sealed. He elaborates its significance, Paul does, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. So that was Ephesians 4 and, and following. Uh, sorry, Ephesians 1. Verse 4 and following. This is Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
we, all, we always stress that Christ died for his whole body, his whole bride. But I love how when talking to the Galatians, Paul speaks about it so personally that he died for me. And I am in him. And he is in me. It's kind of what we mean when we tell kids, you know, you need to invite Jesus into your heart so that he can live in your heart. Well, I mean, Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of the Father, but this concept stands here in Galatians that you are in him and he is in you. You are united. There's an involvement between the two of you. It has to do with his love for you and your love for him. It's a crucial concept to grasp that your destiny is inextricably linked to Christ's. That's why we have so much confidence and assurance in our future because Christ has already gone through and done what needs to be done and proven that he, he was raised from the dead. Think of all the Jews in the past that looked forward to a coming Messiah. That's why they had the sacrificial system. You know, they had to kill the Passover lamb every single year to symbolize the death of something innocent in place of something guilty. But they were looking forward to Christ. And when he came, John the Baptist said at Christ's baptism, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So they were all hoping that one day the Messiah would come and actually pull this off. And it was that faith that they placed in the fact that he would be able to that saved them. For us, we have the faith in knowing, well, he did it. It's an historical fact that's recorded for us in Scripture. That he lived a perfect life of perfect righteousness, never sinning, proving that he was the son of God, able to do miracles, able to show that he was God's son. And then he gave himself up for us voluntarily on the cross as a substitute for us who are sinful. He's the lamb. He's the Passover lamb. And he was slaughtered and he shed his blood for us so that we can get all of that righteousness that gets you into heaven. And he takes all of that sin that keeps you from heaven bore the wrath of God. And then the resurrection is so important because it was the resurrection from the dead that proved that it was all acceptable to the Father. And he conquered this once for all. And now you get to be part of that destiny. A lot of us have been hearing about identity politics. And a person's identity is something that you can now declare. I don't like this identity that was assigned to me at birth. I choose a different identity and I present my identity this way. I want you to use these pronouns. I want to dress this way. I want you to treat me like I'm this way, even though I was born th that way. And identity crises are, you know, as old as Adam and Eve in the garden, not knowing, you know, covering themselves up with fig leaves and talking to the serpent. I mean, identity is when you don't realize who you actually are. You don't know who you are. That's what peer pressure is. My, my friends are doing this. Maybe I should do this too. Maybe that's who I am. Maybe I'm not. They don't know. Well, friends, if you are a Christian and you are in Christ, that is your identity. That's who you are. You are now linked with him. There's just so much comfort and peace that comes from knowing, well, I don't have to prove anything to anyone. And if he assigns something to me at birth or later in life, if I get sick, if I become, maybe your identity changes. You, you were a husband and now you're a widower. You, you were uh, somebody's child and now you're an orphan. You were a, a famous stockbroker and now you're unemployed. Howie Hubler. Um, 
you know, whatever it is, people's identity gets wrapped up in their career or in their family relationships or in their accomplishments, and that can always be taken from you. I used to be an athlete, now I'm paralyzed. Your, your identity can't be linked to anything that, be, that, that can be taken from you, or you, you run the risk of, of, of devastation. But you know what can never be taken from you? Jesus Christ. Once you're in him, you're in him. He, look, he already did it. It's not like he's going to fail. It's not like, well, we're wondering, you see how good he is at this resurrection thing. No, he did it. And involvement in suffering, this is what Paul talks about here. He says, verse 9, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death. To share in his sufferings. So this is how being in him, that involvement is so linked to suffering. Suffering is the one place where you can, you can tell for sure that you're involved in that way. It's kind of a difficult concept, but you've... You've probably experienced it if you're a parent. I mean, I'm sure there's lots of different ways of experiencing it. I, um, but for a parent, I want you to just think for a moment. If you have a little child and that child is suffering, whether they're going through some sort of surgical procedure or medical condition and they're suffering, they're in pain. Or maybe they're a little older in school and they're rejected by their friends and they're they're, you know, hurt emotionally by something that's going on in their little social circle. Or they, they find out some devastating news or... But especially the physical pain. As a parent, is your first thought, well, I'm so glad it's them suffering and not me. Man, I would hate to have that surgery. Oh, man, I hate earaches. I'm so glad that kid's got an earache and I don't. Of course not. If you're a parent, you know that's not how it works. Your first thought is, I would gladly bear that pain and suffering to free them of it, right? That's what you feel. I would take that on me so that they don't have to have that. They go through this, some sort of painful thing. You're like, I, I wish I could take that from you. Why? That doesn't make any sense. Why would one human being want the pain of another human being? And the answer is very simple. Love. That's what it's like to love somebody. You find out that your spouse has a terminal disease, you're like, I'm glad it's them and not me. No, no, you, you want that. You want to take it from them. That's not evolutionary sustainable. <laughs> You know, that doesn't make scientific sense for you to survive, wanting to suffer for someone else. But that's what love does. And so this is what happens with Jesus and you when you place your faith in him and you're putting all of your eggs in the Jesus basket. Like, if Jesus didn't exist or if he did and he was just a man or he died and he didn't rise again, we are all up a creek without a paddle. <laughs> We have no hope because we're not hedging our bets here. We're all in with Jesus. 
And so as you place all your faith in him, he takes all of that on himself. And your suffering is his suffering. And his suffering is your suffering. And that's how you know that you're in him. 1 John 3, verse 1. See what kind of love. Well, I remember, learned it as a song as a kid. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. That we should be called the children of God. And so we are. See what kind of love God has given to us that we should be called his children. The way you feel about your children and how you want to spare them, that's how he feels about you. When they go through that suffering, even though you know it might be good for them what they're going through, it still hurts you. In the same way, the tests and trials and difficulties we go through, even though they're good for us, Christ is with us in them. He's involved in your suffering. Isn't that a comfort? Don't you sometimes feel like you're going through this and you're alone? No one else gets it? Nobody understands what I'm going through? Jesus understands. He was tempted in every way that we are tempted. Yet without sin. Let me read you a few verses from Hebrews. Hebrews 2.18 For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus was tempted. He suffered. And because of that, when you're being tempted, whether it's a, a test you're going through, a trial that you're going through, a temptation to sin, you have to realize Jesus was tempted. But he resisted. And so he, he, can, he can sympathize with you in that. That's Hebrews 2.18. What about Hebrews 4.15? famous verse well, verse uh, 414 since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus the son of God let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to what sympathize with our weakness but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. You can go to the throne of grace. You can go to prayer knowing that what you're praying to isn't a distant God who's so transcendent that he actually has no idea what you're going through because he's so holy and he's so apart from sin that this temptation you have to sin or this temptation you have to discouragement or this temptation you have to just give up you say, well, he doesn't even know what that's like. He's God. He can do anything. No, Jesus became fully man, including all of our weaknesses and our limitations. That's why he didn't just teleport wherever he went, but walked and got blisters and got aches and pains and got hungry and got tired and was rejected and was betrayed and suffered physically and emotionally and spiritually so that whatever you're going through, he's been through it. And you can ask him for help. And he'll give it to you. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness. Hebrews 12, verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Just consider, just think about what Jesus went through at the hands of sinners. He endured from sinners with such hostility against himself. People hated Jesus. Given a choice of freeing an insurrectionist 
rebel or Jesus, they all said, well, give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. They hated him. And he endured that hostility so that you may not grow weary. Whatever you're going through, he went through it worse. And so he sympathizes with you. So this is what you get. This is your involvement. This is what Paul's saying, I want to share in his sufferings. It's the concept of sympathetic resonance. Have you ever heard that term? It's a, it's a, I don't know if it's musical or if it's physics, but if you have a piano, you should do this next time you're in a piano shop. If you have a grand piano and, and there's a room full of pianos and if they're all tuned, then if you just go to the middle C on one of them and you just go, well, probably it's more like, Ding. I don't know. Anyway, you hit the, Ding. all of the other middle C strings in all the other pianos will start resonating slightly. They'll pick up the frequency. It's just called a sympathetic resonance. So when, when, when you're struck with, with suffering, Christ resonates with that because he's been there. And, and all of us, all other Christians who are tuned to Christ, we're with you in that. We're family. That's why we grieve with those who grieve. We mourn with those who mourn, and we rejoice with those who rejoice. There's a sympathetic resonance because we're all tuned to Christ. And Christ rejoiced, and Christ grieved, and he mourned, and he suffered. So draw strength from the involvement that you and Christ share when you suffer. So that's the fourth gain that we get from, from being in Christ and letting go of the rubbish of our own self-righteousness. But there's a fifth one, invincibility. So we looked at intimacy and innocence and invigoration last week. We just looked at involvement, the sharing of his suffering. And then there's this other thing that you get from being in Christ, and that is invincibility or glory. Look at verse 11. Go back. Philippians 3, 11. So... So becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is something that you get that, that you only get if you're in Christ. If you let go of all of your righteousness and all of the things that you place your faith in, your pedigree, your family and all that, your, your promotion, that you're a deacon in the church or the leader of the band or the pastor or whatever it is. You know, you're letting go of all of those things and instead you embrace Christ. One of the things that you get is this actual power, this invincibility over the one thing that we all fear and that's death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, let me just explain this. When I say, well, now that we're invincible from death, that doesn't mean we don't, well, doesn't, doesn't mean we don't die. I mean, of course we die. Everybody dies. Jesus died. That's not what that's talking about. It doesn't mean that we can't experience death. It means, get this, we don't stay dead. Everybody dies, but we don't stay dead. We get knocked down, we don't get knocked out. Now, I don't know if you knew this or not, but there's, there's two types of deaths. There's a first death and a second death. That's the terminology the Bible uses. Two resurrections because there's two deaths. I'm not making this up. Uh, turn to Revelation 20. Let me just show you. 
So the Bible talks about two types of death, a physical and a spiritual death, right? So you see this sometimes, like when Jesus says to the guy who wants to go and bury his father, his father died, let me go bury my father. And what does Jesus say to him? Let the dead bury the dead. Same word, two different meanings. How can dead people bury people? It's not a zombie movie here, right? So when he says, let the dead go and do something, he means the spiritually dead. Let the unbelievers who don't want to follow me deal with the mundane stuff of the world, you know, like building bridges and making coffee and burying people, okay? Let the dead bury the dead. You leave all that behind and you follow me. That's the point that he's making there. So let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. So, so we're familiar with that concept. Now, John in Revelation chapter 20, verse 5. Okay, well, let me read it from the end of verse 4. They they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And then it says this, the rest of the dead did not come to life until, the rest of the physically dead, did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection, like lucky fish if you're in that one. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released, etc., etc. So you've got this first death, physical death, and a resurrection, the first resurrection. And then there's a second death with the second resurrection. So, the first death is the physical death that we all go through. This is the death that has a pretty good track record. I mean, it's running at 100%. And I know that you're thinking, well, what about Elijah? That's not 100%. Elijah didn't die. He went up in a chariot of fire. Yes, but Lazarus died twice, so it evens out. Okay, so... Yes, it's true, Enoch Enoch and Elijah are the two that didn't physically die yet, I believe. I believe that they will. I think that they're the two witnesses who die in the end. So everyone gets it. But, but some people die and then come back to life like Lazarus, like the little girl who died. Um, and then, but then they just die again. So that's the physical death. Um, the second death is an eternal dying in hell. Sometimes we call that perishing I'll give you an example here. John 3.16, you know the verse, but maybe you've never thought of that word being in it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's not that if you believe in Jesus, you don't die physically. We will still die, even believers. It's if you believe in Jesus, you don't die the second death, the eternal death, the perishing in hell. That's what you're being saved from because you get eternal life. You only ever have to have one death. John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to, you know, Martha and Mary are there and they're grieving the death of Lazarus. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So Jesus is doing the play on words there as well. The two types of death. Um, if you believe in me, though he die physically, yet he will live 
physically. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die eternally. And then to make the point that he was capable over both, he actually raised Lazarus from the dead, even though he had been dead for you know, four days. You should read that account in the King James, where she says to the Lord, and he says, go open the tomb. And she says, but Lord, he stinketh. <laughs> yeah, he stinketh because he's been in there four days. This wasn't a resuscitation. This wasn't like maybe he's in a coma. No, he's been buried. He's been rotting already. That's how powerful I am. When I say I am the resurrection and the life, I can bring him physically back from that. Now do you believe what I say about being able to raise people from the dead? That's what we have to look forward to. Our involvement with him comes with this power, this invincibility over death. Though we die physically, we don't die the second time forever. So you resurrected before unbelievers. You will reign with Christ for a thousand years. Then the unbelievers who are resurrected in the second resurrection are sentenced to a second death. We, on the other hand, who believe in Christ are immune to the second death. We've been raised in the first resurrection. That's why he says, blessed are those who are raised now. That's the good one. You come up in the first resurrection, that means you stay alive. Then after the, after the thousand-year kingdom, there's this, this other resurrection, the second resurrection. That's for the bad guys. That's for the people who rejected Jesus. And they get sentenced to a second death. So verse 11, go back to, where are we? In Philippians. Verse 11 um, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. It's not that you don't die physically, it's that you don't perish eternally. Now the word resurrection here is quite a unique word. It, I mean, it is a unique word. It's the only place Paul uses it. It's the only place the New Testament uses it. And it's Paul actually, I think Paul made it up. You know, it's called a hopox legomena, a word that only appears one time. And because the, the, word, uh, the Greek word for uh, resurrection is Anastasia. You know, if you've met, met a Greek girl named Anastasia, that's who she's named after. You know, she's named after resurrection. Anastasia, to rise again. Resurrection. But he makes up a word, ek Anastasia, which isn't a word. But what it means is out of, again, risen. And he uses it in a phrase that actually means you are raised out of the dead people. So what he's saying is, this word that he uses here, that I may gain in the resurrection, he's actually talking about the physical resurrection out from the corpses, is what it means. So he's talking about the physical, not, not just, you know, sometimes people say, well, yeah, the, Jesus was resurrected in that he lives in our hearts and minds. And uh, that's not helpful to me. That's not comforting to me to believe that, you know, liberal Christians teach that. You can go to a church, and they teach, well, Jesus died on the cross to show us the lengths of his love and the depths of his sacrifice. Obviously, he wasn't physically raised three days later, but three days later, everyone kind of remembered his teachings, and they, they came alive in hope again because of what he taught them, and, and that started the church movement. And in that way, Jesus is alive, you know, in our, in our thoughts and our hope and our minds, and, but he's still in the grave. That's not helpful to me because when I die, I don't want to just be alive in your thoughts. I mean, it's nice, 
I'm sure you'll have a little slideshow of my life and whatever, and you'll remember me for, you know, some of you remember me longer than others. But that's not resurrection. I want to be back alive, right? That's what happened with Jesus. He didn't just come alive in some mysterious way. He came alive up out from the dead people. That's the resurrection I want. What about you? On your deathbed, you can lie there knowing what's coming might be scary, but it doesn't matter. Because I'm united with him in a life like his, in a death like his, and therefore in a resurrection like his. And that's why Romans 8.11 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, dwed, raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Not in a spiritual way. Your mortal bodies will come alive. I'll read that again. Romans 8.11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, which he does if you're a believer, that's what the race of Romans 8 is about, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. I mean, you can't, this isn't ambiguous. You will actually come alive again. Uh, at the Shepherds Conference last week, I got into a little debate with another pastor there, as you do when you're at the conference. Why else go? <laughs> to have cappuccinos and debate theology. And we were debating cremation versus burial. And his point was Christians should be buried, not cremated, because it's a sign of coming up from the dead. And I, there's lots of Christians in the world that hold that, and lots of Christians in the world that... Um, have held that because it's a sign of faith. You know, I'm going to be buried in the spot and I'm coming back up in the spot. And I was just saying, I really don't think it matters. <laughs> like, in my mind, the more you burn me up and scatter me all over, the more it shows the faith I have that Jesus will be able to remain back into this body. <laughs> and even if you go down in the grave because that's your thing, I hate to break it to you. The worms eat you. And then the birds eat the worms. And then we eat the birds. Right? So it doesn't matter what happens to your body. You can be blown up. You can be drowned. You can be eaten by fishes. You can, I mean, all the grim ways of dying. It doesn't matter. Because he's that powerful. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 is saying. That's what the whole chapter is about. 1 Corinthians 15, 53. For this perishable body, the one that can, you know, get all wrinkly and old and achy and and then die and eaten by worms, that one, the perishable body, must put on the imperishable, the invincible one. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that's written, death is swallowed up in victory, O death, where is your victory, O death? Where is your sting? For the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have victory over death except through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Paul's point here. Physical death isn't that bad because it's not permanent for Christians. Um, I read uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's autobiography called Total Recall. And in it, he recalls this uh, humorous situation that developed on the first movie that he was in. The first big movie is Conan the Barbarian. Now, I've never seen Conan the Barbarian, but it's pretty much what I think we're picturing, a barbarian, right? And he talks about the scene. He's like, 
I think he's on a horse and he's got a sword and he's going through the mat and he's like chopping down all the bad guys. And this was filmed somewhere that was cheap, I think somewhere in Eastern Europe, like I forget now, it was like Poland or Romania or one of those places. And um, he's chopping down all of these bad guys. But what kept happening is that these actors, I mean, they're, not, they're never going to Hollywood. This is the first time, maybe the only time they're ever going to be in a movie. So they wanted to like really milk it. So he would like chop this guy down and move on to the next guy. And the guy gets up again. And he's like staggering around and has, wailing and moaning and has this big death scene. And then the next guy, he kind of jabs and moves on. And the next guy's like clutching and getting up and moaning. And they're all, so he, like this invincible barbarian is having a real hard time killing people. <laughs> Because everybody he kills just won't die. They fall over and they get up again. So, and they, the director could not get them to stop like overacting their death scenes. He's like, we just want him to come through and kind of touch you with the sword and you just fall over and stay dead. But they couldn't do it. They were all like, oh no, and they have this thing. So the producers paid them more money. They paid these extras. They said, listen, we're going to double your salary just to stay dead. And I couldn't help but thinking when I read that, that's what Satan's like with Christians. I will pay you whatever it takes to get you to just stay dead. You want more money in your life? You want more comfort? You want more popularity? Whatever your price is, he'll write you a check. Because if you deny Christ, you can have all sorts of things in this life. But you know what you can't have? The resurrection from the dead. That's all Satan cares about. He doesn't necessarily want you to be miserable now. He wants you to be dead forever. Jesus is the opposite. Jesus says the misery you're going through now, it doesn't matter. It's momentary, light, affliction, when compared with the eternal weight of glory. That's what I came to give you. That's what you get when you're united with me. So you want to know, what do I get for releasing my rubbish and prizing the prophet? This is what you get. You get Jesus and everything that comes with him. And yes, you get the invigoration of the Holy Spirit helping you live this life. And yes, you get all the things that we spoke about before, the intimacy and the knowledge of, of knowing not just about him, but actually knowing him. And you get the innocence of his righteousness on judgment day, which is very important. And you get the involvement in his suffering and his suffering and uh, his involvement in your suffering. But ultimately, you get the invincibility of living forever. And so there's nothing that you own and there's nothing that you have that is worth eternity. There's nothing that you will ever give up that you will regret giving up the moment you die. So release your rubbish. All the rubbish that Satan is offering, all the rubbish that your flesh is gravitating towards and cling to the priceless treasure of the one who lived and died for you. Let go of all of that pride. You, I'm okay, I'm fine, I'm Christian enough because I go to church and I do Christian things. I was born in a Christian family, raised in a Christian nation, went to a Christian school. Let go of that rubbish. I do all these good things. I give money. I'm, I'm not that bad. I don't cheat. I don't steal. I don't cuss. I vote for the right party. I'm like a good person. That's rubbish. It counts nothing. It's not even going to show up on the balance sheet. It's nothing. It's rubbish. It's lost. Let it go. Cling to Christ alone. And he will change you. He'll give you new desires and new motives and 
new passions and he'll put you to work in his kingdom and he'll make you want to give things away and he'll make you want to give away your time and he'll make you want to serve and he'll make you want to give away your life for him. And when you do, you won't regret it. You won't doubt for a second. You'll close your eyes in this life and you'll open your eyes in heaven with him for eternity, invincible, never to die again. So I just want to mention to you that Michael Burry, the guy I told you about in the beginning, who made that investment nobody else thought about, he's making another investment that people didn't think about. He's putting all of his eggs in this basket. Water. He believes that there's going to be a massive shortage of drinkable water in our world. And so he's busy buying up crops and products that take the most water because they're going to go up in price. And again, people think he's crazy. I don't know. It's got a good track record. What are you going to do? Going to go put all your money in water? Okay, well, I don't know about that, but there is a trade that is more real, more sure, and more precious. It's the trade that Paul made, investing all of his trust in one place, putting all of his eggs in the one basket of Jesus Christ. Some thought Paul was crazy. And for those who follow his example, they're going to think we're crazy to count all things for loss, uh, as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ. But I'm pretty sure that when we get to heaven, Paul, who gave us this advice in Philippians, he's going to look at you and smile and say, you're welcome. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for this reminder. Everything in our world is always telling us that we should value things here on earth. Every commercial we ever see, every advertisement is always telling us that we're lacking something, that we need something, that things here are valuable. Lord, everything in the world tells us that we are good enough. And yet Paul reminds us of this reality that he learned from Christ, that everything is rubbish and worthless, except for Jesus Christ. So I pray that you would give us the wisdom and the fortitude to turn our backs on the things that keep us away from serving you with our whole heart. And that we would release that rubbish and cling to our prize and profit in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in your name, our dear Savior. Amen.